0: Hi, I'm Andy Hart from SPD Automotive, and welcome back to Case Studies, our weekly series looking at connectivity, autonomy, shared mobility and electrification within the automotive industry. Today, we're focusing on the last of those, electrification. And as you'd expect, there's gonna be a lot of talk about Tesla and Elon, among various other topics. But before we get to that, I want to give a shout out to the original Elon, Robert Davidson, a Scottish inventor who built the first electric vehicle back in 1837. It was a whopping seven-ton vehicle powered by galvanic cells that could reach a dizzying top speed of four miles per hour. Unfortunately, it was promptly destroyed by railway workers who saw it as a threat to their jobs. That period saw a huge amount of transformation and disruption, much like we're seeing in the mobility sector today. So to talk us through how far electrification has come and where it's going next, I'm joined by our very own Robert, Robert Fisher, who heads up our EV research team. Hi, Andy. Great to be chatting with you as always. So let's jump straight into the big elephant in the room, Tesla. Most of our listeners, I'm sure, have been reading for the last few weeks about the anticipated one million mile battery. Talk us through what you think it means for the auto industry and for car buyers.
1: Yeah, Tesla's been very busy recently with their press releases. And uh, Elon stated a long time ago that he wanted to have a million mile uh, plus battery in their cars, but he only recently announced some of the actual plans to do that. They've developed this this battery with the Chinese battery supplier, CATL. And because of that, it's no surprise they're planning to launch this in the Chinese market first. Um, We should also note that uh, Tesla is not the only OEM to announce a plan for a million mile battery. Uh, GM just announced this. However, GM did not provide any real concrete details. so We don't really know how far they've come with that idea. Uh, But back to Tesla, let's look at what advantages a million mile battery would bring them. Uh, The average EV is expected to be on the road for 200 to 250,000 miles, which is about the design limits of most modern EV batteries. Uh, Further than this, the battery will begin to experience kind of a rapid capacity reduction and it's no longer really viable for a vehicle. So if we extend the life of that battery by four to five times, will consumers keep their cars four to five times longer? I, I don't think so. I don't think that's the end goal. The average consumer would not be expected to drive a car past, a say, 250,000-mile mark, which is around the expected end of life for internal combustion uh, vehicles as well. So with rapid advances in in-car tech, autonomous safety features, et cetera, uh, consumers have more and more reasons to want a newer car. And what about from Tesla's perspective? Would it make sense for them to extend vehicle life so much that they sacrifice their own vehicle sales volume? I don't believe so. In fact, um, there there are a few reasons they would want to do this outside of changing the the lifetime of their actual vehicles. There are a few very important reasons that that Musk would want to focus on these long life batteries. Uh, The first is shared mobility. Although the industry is currently in a bit of a slump because of the COVID crisis, shared vehicles can indeed reach the million mile mark. And of course, if you can provide one battery that could see this vehicle through the entire lifetime, that would dramatically reduce the operating costs and the purchase cost of that vehicle. Second is battery leasing. Although some companies have already offered this, Tesla has not yet. Uh, they did initially start off with the concept of battery replacement, where you could simply swap a battery, but they have since dropped that idea. I do fully expect that Tesla will want to guarantee their access to these long life batteries at the end of the vehicle's life. Uh, whether the vehicle's wrecked or simply at the end of its useful life, the battery may still have several hundreds of thousands of cycles left to offer. In fact, Tesla may choose to refurbish the batteries and install them into new vehicles, The owner pays a lease fee to tesla and then tesla replaces the battery if necessary at tesla's cost throughout the ownership of the vehicle this would potentially allow tesla to produce one battery that could be installed in four or five vehicles over its lifetime of course this would take decades to truly deplete the battery's usefulness so that really brings us to the final reason the final reason that tesla would want these long life batteries is not just so they can reinstall them in new cars but also so they can install them in power grid projects Um, elon has long been a proponent Of home storage and grid storage batteries. By improving the life expectancy of Tesla's batteries and guaranteeing access to them, possibly through leasing, Tesla can install the used batteries in a stationary grid operation or home-based storage products as well. The battery's first life would be in the car for say 10 years or more and then go into retirement to support electrical infrastructure.
0: That's really interesting, Robert. MIT has just published a study, I think, highlighting the potential value of reusing old batteries for energy storage. Do you think the concept of second life batteries could have a a big impact on either EVs or how we manage energy as a society?
1: Yeah, the MIT study was very interesting. It's not just that they said second life batteries could be useful, but that they said it's actually viable and they provided specific percentages of kind of remaining battery life that would be required to make it viable. So there's a pretty big advancement in in the research there. Um, Power grid support battery installations are already in existence, but most of these use factory new batteries straight out of the factory floor. Uh, There are some small implementations of Second Life batteries, such as one uh, developed by BMW, uh, currently installed in Germany, and that augments a wind power farm. So when the wind power reduces due to, say, nighttime coming, the wind slowing down, the batteries kick in to kind of support that power delivery. This is not particularly challenging from a technical perspective, but it is really quite challenging from a business and logistic perspective. Uh, to use these batteries in a second life application, the OEM needs to have access to them as we talked about before. They also need to know the physical and chemical health of the battery so they can determine the potential value of that battery. Um, then usually another company will need to have a way to obtain the battery, reconfigure it, and install it at the site. All of that's really difficult to manage unless the OEM is leasing the batteries to the consumer. So in the case of Tesla, they intend to provide grid support installations as part of their portfolio. So the equation is a bit simpler for them. It takes one of the third parties out of the equation. And then how can grid support impact our energy management as a society? A Very interesting question. And I think there are a lot of different ways that it could, but the the simplest is that it can reduce the size of the power installations, whether that's wind, solar, gas, or even coal. So instead of designing for the maximum power needed at any given point, you simply design for the average power needed, and the batteries support the peaks and the valleys. This enables you to operate your, your power delivery systems at kind of an optimal level, which dramatically improves the efficiency of the system. Um, but even these batteries will eventually reach the end of their useful life, and we need to find a good solution to, to how, do we, how do we recycle those. We can't just keep kicking that can down the road. So that is something that's currently very difficult and costly, but uh, many researchers are working on it.
0: It's really interesting. It's such a bigger ecosystem than just batteries on its own, I'm guessing. Um, and I'm guessing governments play quite a big role in enabling the success of EVs moving forward. There was some talk about governments rolling back regulations to shift away um, from ICEs because of COVID and the concern about the auto industry survival. But here in Europe, the EU is considering making EVs exempt from BAT as part of their post-COVID finance rescue package. What trends are you seeing globally related to electric vehicle incentivization?
1: Uh yeah, you're absolutely right. Incentivization varies enormously from country to country. Um, in most wealthy countries, the incentives are usually kind of a strategic building block for the environmental policy and for the strategic economic plan. So when you have something like COVID come that really impacts the market, the policymakers have to decide whether and how to adjust those policies to optimize the impact on the economy. And this could result in a negative impact on EVs, especially if it uh, negatively impacts the environmental plan. In this case, much to many analysts surprised, the EV sales appeared to be impacted much less than ICE sales. Many automakers are seeing EVs as a potential lifeline while their ICE profits suffer. The story is a bit different in the USA where automakers have not received much support for EVs from the current administration. So that's left them kind of not knowing which technologies they should prioritize and which ones might be profitable in the future. The European and Chinese narrative is indeed quite different with governments using EV policies as a tool uh, to kind of achieve a win-win for the environment and the economy. The idea being that EV development and production requires a large number of skilled people working in uh, skilled jobs, and by supporting consumer spending in the sector, the industry can remain afloat and even prevent a stall or reversal of the industry, while also reducing the impact on the consumer's wallet.
0: Let's talk about consumers and how they're reacting to EVs. You've done a huge amount of testing of EVs. What do you see as being the ideal user experience for electric vehicles?
1: Yeah, and this is something that OEMs have not really figured out universally. Uh, Some are doing a really good job and some are not. Um, To me, the ideal user experience is one that supports a new EV user as well as an experienced one in a way that feels seamless. It doesn't feel like a big departure from an ICE vehicle. Uh, you know, we, we've learned to, to use vehicles for some of us many decades, and switching over to a completely new way of using that vehicle can be very disconcerting. Um, driving an EV certainly requires an adjustment to your daily routine, but it doesn't need to be a burden on your routine. For instance, uh, we recently took an Audi e Tron on a multi day journey through the Alps. Uh, we gave the vehicle very high marks for its overall EV user experience. Um, the system would automatically calculate the journey to reduce the overall time of the journey which meant that if we needed to stop, say, four times to charge, it would find four charging stations along the way that were optimized to take the shortest amount of time to charge the battery. And it knew exactly which options our vehicle had, so it knew what the maximum power uh, charging capability was for the battery. And it would also locate these charging stations to be as close to our route as possible. It was all, all very quick and seamless, and everything happened automatically. We didn't have to worry about it. And the charging points were included in Audi's own charging network, meaning that no additional fobs or cards or anything else were needed to actually pay for the charging. Uh, Even with this, however, a charge can still take 20 minutes to well over an hour while on a road trip. And that's something that automakers and charging networks are working to improve. I think we we still have quite a ways to go before we achieve true parity uh, with ICE vehicles.
0: Without mentioning any names necessarily, uh, can you talk us through some of the worst practices that you've seen out there when you've done testing and you've seen certain uh, implementations that have created more friction points for consumers?
1: Oh, sure, we, we have plenty of examples of that as well. A few good examples, we, we know of some vehicles, I won't mention those names, where the OEMs have simply transplanted software from, from an ICE vehicle to an EV, and there is no thought about how to support that EV journey. There's, there's no ability to look up charging stations. Um, the system still talks about getting oil changes, for instance, it, it's just an absolute nightmare for the people who decide to take that plunge into the EV um, vehicles. Uh, meanwhile, there are also some that are not quite as blatantly bad, but there are OEMs that have, yes, they've considered charging station locations. They've considered switching the user interface to talk about the battery charge instead of when their next oil changes. Um, but they, they still don't provide that extra level of infrastructure support. They they don't allow you to book a charging station or to uh, see what the opening hours are for a for a charging location.
0: Do you think some of that is maybe a reflection of the kind of twin approach that some OEMs have taken of, rushing to market with bolt-on batteries on top of existing platforms uh, for one direction, but then in parallel developing more of a white uh, blank sheet of paper approach uh, to, to new EV platforms. Do you see any of that within the testing that you do? There there
1: certainly is a lot of that. Um, like you said, a lot of OEMs are rushing to try to get something into the market, um, part of that so they can meet the environmental requirements of the, of the region or of the country but also because they they know there is consumer demand for EVs and they know that they have to have something available for the the consumer to purchase, so they kind of rush something to market. Um, And another thing too is the cooperation between OEMs and suppliers. There is an an unprecedented amount of uh, cooperation between the different OEMs that are developing EVs and, say, the battery suppliers that are providing the supplies to those companies. And what this means is that sometimes you'll have a battery that was originally designed for a Toyota, installed into a BMW or something along those lines. The the infotainment system may be borrowed from another brand, and this creates a kind of fractured approach to the overall user experience. This, I would say, was more common five to ten years ago uh, as we were really getting into hybrids and plug-in hybrids, but we still do see some remnants of that today.
0: Mm. Let's talk about range. Uh, h- how much? range does an EV buyer actually need or want? And linked to that, how important is fast charging to the success of EVs?
1: Yeah, excellent question. Um, the, the range question was something that we we're really interested in. So we've actually done a few different surveys on this topic in uh, a few different regions, and it, it really doesn't matter who you ask. Uh, of course, it varies a little bit by the region, but pretty much every ICE driver that you ask how much range they would need in a vehicle they will always answer 300 plus miles, or the equivalent in kilometers. Um, it's likely influenced by their knowledge of current premium EV range. They hear, you know, how far a Tesla can go, for instance. And they also desire to have the security that a typical gasoline vehicle would provide, which is frequently somewhere between 300 and 500 miles. They also state that fast charging times are one of their main concerns with owning an EV. They don't, they don't want to have to sit and wait for a charge there are a few reasons that they're concerned about this one of them is they think about the the long trips that they would take going to a family member's house or something in a different state or a different country and that may take four or five charging stops along the way and yes if they if they're not optimized it could take them many extra hours the other reason though is that they're not necessarily considering that most of their charging will be done at home the vast majority of people uh, that, that purchase an ev will be charging it at their house or in their garage if they have one Some people that don't have that ability, for instance, in a a dense city, that would be a different story. But that's something that's not often considered and many of these people may never need to actually charge their vehicle outside the home. So it'd actually be an improved user experience compared to an ICE vehicle. So I think we we need to do a little bit of education to consumers as well to help them understand how much range they actually need in a, a vehicle and what that might do to their charging scenario, how much extra time it would take them on a weekly basis or on those special long trips. And if we do that, we might actually be able to increase the adoption of smaller battery uh, electric vehicles with, with a smaller range. Of course, that would reduce the cost of those vehicles and perhaps improve overall adoption of EVs. It's,
0: it's interesting because uh, in, when I was shopping for my last car, I was looking for a kind of family sized electric vehicle. Uh, I've got two young kids and range wasn't as much of a factor because my range is limited by how often my kids need the toilet in between journeys. And so I wasn't really looking at range in that sense, but I was looking for size uh, and I couldn't find a reasonably priced electric vehicle that had enough space for all of the the junk that little kids need with them when we travel from one place to another. Do you see electric vehicles starting to match kind of some of the ICE vehicles when it comes to space uh, SUV style vehicles with with larger trunks?
1: Uh, There certainly are. I think I think the US is kind of leading that as they have been with uh, SUVs, large trucks and things for, for quite some time. For instance, you you've got the Model X, which is significantly larger than the Model S before it. Um
0: Yeah, my uh, my wife won't let me buy one of those, unfortunately.
1: <laughs> Just too much fun, huh? <laughs> yeah. Um and of course you can get hybrid, large hybrid vehicles in the in the States as well, and there are some on, on the market here in, in Europe as as well. Um I would say that we are starting to reach kind of a parity with ICE vehicles for the size and different varieties of packaging of those vehicles. Uh, you even have uh, electric pickup trucks on the horizon. Um, of course, we, we have commercial vehicles that are are being electrified. So that gap is being bridged and kind of one of the stops on the, the roadmap uh, for electrification.
0: The question I'd like to ask is startups and players like Rivian, like Karma, a lot of these players that were that, that came out over the last six or seven years and under the assumption that ICEs were harder to build than electric vehicles and therefore, if everything was electric, strictly speaking, you'd be able to launch a car relatively easily. All of these startups came along um, who thought that it was going to be relatively easy to enter the automotive market because the market was going electric, but they seem to have struggled. In fact, it took Tesla a long, long time to get to where it has today. Is it as easy as others have maybe expected in the past to launch electric vehicles um, or are there some still some inherent challenges in scaling up production lines and manufacturing lines to be able to support electrification, even electric vehicles?
1: Uh, right. Yeah, there, there have been a lot of electric startups and you'll see a, a, a difference in how they have succeeded or failed depending on the regions. If we, if we look at China as an example, there are dozens of electric startups there. Many of them have succeeded, but we are seeing that uh, that contraction coming where the market simply won't bear as many competitors. So some of those, even though they may be producing vehicles, they will probably be bought out or they may go into bankruptcy. In the US, the story is a little bit different where we we do have several startups. Most of them are fairly niche. They're looking at uh, supercars or some form of exotic or they're they're targeting a shared mobility model or maybe they're looking at um, light commercial vehicles. For instance with uh, Rivian and Amazon and their deal. Um, the, if they can find that niche that really speaks to a consumer base or another B2B uh, business arrangement, then yes, I think they can still be successful. They'll also find that it's incredibly difficult. Yes, there are fewer parts, but the part count is not really what, what makes a, uh, an OEM startup easy or difficult. It really comes down to whether or not you can find someone who's willing to invest in you. And that's really been the the big success of Tesla is they are experts at getting investors. Um, other companies have had some success, but not nearly to the same level as Tesla. And part of that's because Tesla exists. If somebody's looking to invest in an EV company, they see Tesla as being one of the kind of proven existing cases. So why would I not why would I not continue to invest in that one? Is there really a reason I should take a chance on this other new startup? Yeah, I think that's really where the complexity comes in. It's not so much the the design and engineering; it's the it's getting the funding for your company.
0: Makes sense, absolutely. Let's talk a little bit more about the technologies now. Uh, the debate around batteries versus fuel cells seems to rage on and on. Do you see battery-based electric vehicles as just being a bridge on the way to something better, like hydrogen?
1: Yeah, this is definitely a battle. It's a it's a very heated debate. Every two to three years, you'll you'll see kind of an ebb and flow of the conversation around fuel cell, and it varies on the region, on the country, on the OEM. Uh, everybody has a different opinion on it, and it seems to shift constantly. Um, however, traditionally, Japan and South Korea have long been strong proponents of fuel cell technology. Uh, Hyundai, Honda, Toyota, they've all been champions of the technology, and they've had fuel cell vehicles in the market for quite some time now. Um, but they are still very expensive pro- to produce. The infrastructure is not there for charging outside of a few small test markets. And we still have a lot of technical problems with the efficiency of the vehicles. Uh, In fact, many of the estimates right now estimate the overall efficiency of about 30 to 40% from generation of the hydrogen to consumption of the hydrogen. And then of course, they they do require expensive rare earth metals and materials, much like their BEV cousins, Um, but BEVs are currently much higher efficiency, so it, it would take a very strong reason to say, yes, I want to purchase a fuel cell vehicle when I know that it's going to require nearly twice as much energy to operate. The main advantage though with fuel cells is their ability to fill the tank in a very short period of time. You don't need an expensive fast charger. You simply need a a tank and a pump and you're ready to go. You can usually fill them up in about the same amount of time it takes for an ICE vehicle to be filled with petrol. But with the current technologies, fuel cell I don't think is going to be a viable alternative in passenger vehicles. There, there may be some options for it in long haul vehicles or even in delivery vehicles, but not for passenger vehicles. For, I would say probably at least a decade, maybe a little bit longer. It really depends on how quickly researchers are able to improve the efficiency of the overall process.
0: And do you think it will be kind of a, a gradual um, replacement of electric vehicles, battery-based electric vehicles, towards hydrogen after ten years, or do you think both will coexist for for the foreseeable future?
1: I think they will coexist, there will still be a period where fuel cell vehicles are continuing to improve and they're not quite to where BEVs are, and BEVs will continue to improve as well. At some point, I do hope that hydrogen surpasses BEV because there is, I believe, greater promise in the long term, uh, the, the very distant future when we really have this technology figured out. And once that happens, then I think there will be a pretty rapid shift over to that technology.
0: Excellent. So to wrap up this session, um, I'd like you to give us a kind of a top-level roadmap of where you see the industry going when it comes to electrification.
1: Uh, Yeah, there's definitely a a pretty solid roadmap that's been played out by uh, just about every OEM to some extent. Some are further along that roadmap than others. And there are a couple of places where they have yet to go. Um, To start off with, I would say the, the first step on the roadmap is really to introduce hybrids. You know, this is, this is something that we were doing uh, around the year 2000 and even a little bit before, and that's introducing things like the Toyota Prius, the Honda Insight. These kind of raised public awareness about the opportunities that electrification could bring, but they, they still didn't quite get us to where we needed to be, which was to eliminate the internal combustion vehicle, or sorry, internal combustion engine. The next stage on this roadmap is to extend the usability of that vehicle and to allow you to plug it in and charge it up. You may have seen the commercials from the Honda a long time ago when they debuted the Insight. They it said, look, mom, no plugs because they're advertising. You don't have to plug this car in. But the reality is the consumer actually wanted to plug it in. They wanted to be able to plug in the car, charge it up, and not use the internal combustion engine. But that is much more expensive to do. It requires a bigger battery, requires a more complicated drivetrain. And we finally got there. It took us a good, say, five to ten years later. But we finally got to a point where we had to plug in electric vehicles. There were also hybrids. And now we're finally getting to the point where batteries are cheap enough that we can make them large enough that we don't need an internal combustion engine anymore. And BEVs are really what consumers seem to want, but we are starting to see a few limits to this as well, and that's where we mentioned the range. There are going to be those customers that want the security of say, five or 600 miles of range, and that's something you can get with a plug-in hybrid vehicle. So that, that roadmap has a bit of a fork in it. We might still continue to see some of these uh, these plug-in vehicles continued down the road for 10, 20 years. The, the next spot in this roadmap is going to be your first battery electric vehicles. Um, we, we saw this trend starting 10 years ago or so. Every OEM is starting to roll out some small battery electric vehicles. They're now getting larger and larger. Tesla took a slightly different approach to it and they started off with large vehicles. Uh, that's something that set them apart and it's part of the reason they've been so successful. But introducing these first BEVs kind of helps the OEM get their feet wet. They start to understand what sort of R&D is required to develop these these full electrified vehicles and also what's the economic shape of this for them. How does it produce money for them internally? How does it uh, affect their supplier base? Once they get to that point, they'll start to see a roadmap in front of them specifically for them in each of the different markets. And this would be kind of the the third roadmap where we start to see the OEMs converting their ICE um, production over to battery electric production. And we are starting to see this already. Uh, A lot of the German OEMs are doing this. They're Volkswagen, of course, especially the diesel gate. They're beginning to switch their production from uh, ICE to battery electric. They do still have a long way to go. BMW is doing this as well. They recently converted one of their factories to fully electric. We are seeing this in China. Uh, A lot of new OEMs are starting off completely electric. And there's been a rapid expansion there. We do expect some contraction in the near term, but Still, there's been a lot of expansion because I see the value in starting with the new technology instead of having to convert from an older technology to new. So the the next stop in this roadmap is what I would call the fourth stop at the fourth waypoint. And this is where the OEMs are beginning to provide a full range of electric vehicles from their small vehicles all the way up to large vehicles. And they'll still have equivalent ICE vehicles alongside. But what this does is it allows people who are comfortable with, say, driving a pickup truck or driving a small city car, to find an equivalent vehicle on the EV ladder and switch over relatively easily to the same type of vehicle. Of course, it'd be strange for a Chevy Tahoe driver to buy a Chevy Bolt as their next car. So we need to have those natural uh, stepping stones for them to move to electrified vehicles. And then once we get to that point, we should be going to an all EV point on this roadmap It'd be kind of the final destination. This is where the OEM is really seeing that their profits are being driven by EVs and not by ICE. We are starting to see a little bit of that shift still BEVs are usually less profitable but the numbers are starting to look better depending on how the OEM has implemented their strategy and once we really do see that shift the the reduced quantity of components the reduced complexity of the design once we start to see that shift OEMs will make this natural move away from ICE and we should start to see fully electrified OEMs uh, come from their ICE past um, Chinese OEMs are starting to make them move very fast, Volkswagen is making them move fast as well, and I expect other ones to take up the, uh, the torch soon.
0: Excellent, that's been really helpful, Robert. Thanks for talking us through the future of electrification. Personally, I'm looking forward to my next car being electric, as long as I can fit the hundreds of toys my kids seem to need us to bring on every trip. So next week, we have the last episode in our case series, and we're going to be aiming to bring together all four of these trends into a clear long-term roadmap that provides a level of clarity that's often been missing within the automotive industry. In the meantime, keep those questions coming, and we look forward to seeing you all again next week. Thank you.